I'm Zoe Bisbee, and this is the Full Bloom Podcast, where we're nurturing a more embodied and inclusive next generation. For most of us, the pandemic brought some iteration of remote schooling and put parents in a uniquely voyeuristic position. Many of us got to see our teachers innovate in unimaginable ways to keep our kids engaged, motivated, and on track academically. And yet, this new fly-on-the-wall experience exposed how pervasive and unmonitored problematic talk about food, body image, and weight really is in the classroom. Science classes presenting sugar as a toxin, weight training class asking teens to log dietary intake, and first grade math problems featuring calorie counting are just a few of the examples today's guest, Virginia Soul Smith, writer and body positive parent of two, uncovered in a piece she wrote for the New York Times. Virginia, welcome back to the Full Bloom podcast. Tell us what we need to know about what is going on in schools and what we as parents can do about it. Sure. Well, I think it's the type of thing you probably know about without realizing you know about, because what we're really talking about is the way diet culture shows up in schools And it shows up in these very explicit ways in terms of curriculum, and then it shows up in very subtle ways in terms of the conversations that happen around food and bodies with teachers and students or just sort of like in the larger school community, the way these issues are framed. And I think the reason that that article did resonate is because of remote schooling, you know, parents are literally listening in on their children's school day in a way that we didn't before. I didn't used to have to go to second grade. That we were Um, never intended to do. (laughs) And we're not supposed to be there. Yeah, totally. Um, And so it means we hear the sort of off the cuff comments that in the past we probably would, like your kid might not necessarily report that that happened. And now I don't want to make that sound like we should be like scrutinizing teachers or like policing teachers, (laughs) like words that come out of teachers' mouths. But I think it's given us all an opportunity. I think the thing about diet culture is you so often don't recognize it when you're saying it. And then you hear somebody say something and you think like, oh, wait, oh, that, you know, that's the thing that I don't want. And so I think there's been a little bit of both. You know, the families I interviewed in the article is like we're talking about like things, comments they heard over Zoom. But it's just another way of realizing how common this conversation is and how much we always, you know, sort of default to demonizing food or demonizing bodies in this, like, low-key, we don't even realize we're doing it kind of way. And unfortunately, that's happening at schools every day as well. Yeah. And I mean, what you're saying about the more overt and the otherwise, I'm thinking about how in science classes, for example, I hear all the time, and I'm honestly like... I just don't know if it's happening in my kid's school yet, mm-hmm. but I I have heard a lot of concerns from parents saying that in science classes, the sugar, for example, is being kind of flagged as something toxic or mm-hmm. something dangerous mm-hmm. or something worth being concerned about. But maybe you can tell us a little about that soundbite that that one mom heard, because that was more in passing, right? 
Yeah. So the impassing example was the mom of a first grader who's, you know, now having to go to first grade with her child um, over Zoom. She heard the teacher was doing the like discussion questions to kind of kick off the day. And she was asking all the kids to share what they'd eaten for dinner the night before. And then she said, yeah, I had turkey and vegetables. My husband and I are trying not to eat carbs, so we didn't have any bread. And that that is such a, you know, and I'm sure she said it in like a, you know, and okay, now we're on to whatever the next thing is, Um, you know, (laughs) normal way of doing first grade, but kids love bread. And so now you've heard your beloved teacher doesn't want to eat bread. And so that's confusing. And that's going to, you know, that's a weird message to suddenly get about bread. But then, yeah, the more the sort of baked into the curriculum thing happens two ways. One is the way nutrition is taught in health classes um, with, you know, nutrition is really only taught through a weight-centric model. So kids learn about fruits and vegetables and how to fuel their bodies, but it's all with the aim of preventing, quote, obesity or managing weight in some very overt way. And then the other thing is that food gets used as this kind of currency in the way other non-nutrition curriculums get written. So the sugar and science class, like they're not learning nutrition there. They're like using sugar to use, like do experiments with, but it gets like flagged as a toxin. Or I've even seen um, like word problems in math class that are based on like how, you know, like you're figuring out like how much did this person eat or how many calorie, like calorie calculations as word problems as a way of doing math reading comprehension examples that are a little story about somebody overeating and like needing to lose weight. And like there was one I saw that it was like, now the girls like him so much better, <laughs> like just like crazy. Like these are just like texts that teachers are given to use. And again, because our culture normalizes all of this, like unless you're a teacher who's like, and teachers are overburdened and have so much to do, you know, like you're going to like use the default text you've been given because it's a lot of work to find something else, or maybe it doesn't even strike you as odd, but then there's that cumulative exposure for kids. Totally. I mean, and I'm just thinking even in a non-school environment, if anybody's had the Berenstain Bears uh, books, um, you certainly would know the Berenstain Bears and too much junk food. And like, it's a cautionary tale about what will happen if you eat too much junk food. And it's not really about cavities or not feeling well Mm -hmm. um, or not even growing well if you only eat sugar and you don't eat anything else, but rather they will become fat. Yeah, And this is, you know, San and Jan Berenstain are awesome. Like I don't fault them. And at the same time, because they're just growing up in this culture too. Yeah, But this is a book that, right, like folks like you and me, we might flag that one and maybe not share it with our kids, but like Mm -hmm. well-meaning parents, well-meaning teachers. And I really want this conversation to be very clear. We're not here like shaming anybody. And like, I'm so glad you said teachers are so overtaxed. And if anything, I hope this conversation can be instructive and just things to think about, be a little bit more thoughtful about, and also get some support, right. For these teachers and for schools and for parents, because I'm hearing you say that there's no education really around how to present these ideas in developmentally appropriate ways, whereas other content would be. And I know you wrote about that in the article, so maybe you could tell us more. Right, absolutely. Um, nutrition seems to be this one area of our children's education where there is not the same focus of what information are kids ready to absorb at different ages. We know that younger children are very literal black and white thinkers, so approaching nutrition 
you know, in a black and white way is going to set them up for sort of really restrictive mindset, you know, like this good foods, bad foods kind of approach. And I think often what's happening there is the realities of nutrition are so, like nutrition is A, very abstract and B, very nuanced and also very individual, right? Like what's good nutrition for one person is going to look really different for somebody else um, based on all sorts of different factors. And so to take this like really complicated topic that people, you know, go to graduate school to study and say <laughs> like, how do we teach five-year-olds about it? Um, all you can do is sort of take like, well, there's good foods and there's bad foods. Right, <laughs> and right. like you've boiled it down. And that is understand, like, so that's developmentally appropriate in the sense that you've taken this complicated topic and simplified it for children, but you've done so in a way that reinforces a really negative message around food and sort of like plays into like the children are not ready to grasp beyond that. They're not ready to grasp the nuance beyond that. So you've just given them this thing that's going to dig them in further. And a better way to go about it would be not to teach about good foods and bad foods. But, you know, one expert I interviewed said, you know, like you can talk about the different parts of the apple and like how apples are grown and like teach kids like where food comes from and sort of the story of food without ever demonizing and saying like apples are good for you and candy bars are bad for you. You know, you never need to go there. You just talk about like how different foods are made and, you know, what do different foods mean to different cultures or different families. Um, you know, encourage kids to talk about loving foods and trying new foods in like a no pressure way. There's lots of ways to engage with kids around food that makes it fun and really appeals to their learning level and doesn't you know, reinforce these negative messages. But in order to do that, you have to strip away the weight connection with food. That's really what's underpinning this. Because the way nutrition curriculums are written right now in a weight-centric model, it always comes back to bad foods and, you know, sort of reinforcing this message that fat is bad. And that's what we need to get away from. Because we're there, I, can you give us like the, the quick and dirty of the history of this? Because there was you wrote about kind of the, the history of these curriculums and kind of where they come from and sort of what their aim is. I know you're mentioning that if they are, quote, obesity prevention yeah. kind of models. So can you give us like a little primer around like where do these come from? Why do they exist? And because right. I, I can imagine a lot of teachers don't even know about them, even though they're creating curriculums, like they may not even understand where the guidelines are coming from. That's just a guess. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, so the whole concept of nutrition, you know, initially the way nutrition was approached in schools was about preventing malnutrition and hunger, you know, when we were talking about like sort of earlier 19th century, um, you know, like worrying about scurvy and there's a very different set of health priorities at that point. But then what happened is as the, quote, war on obesity took off in the early 80s, and then in particular in the late 90s, it became very much a war on childhood obesity, we started to see this shift from like teaching kids to eat enough, which was sort of the old school model, to teaching kids to eat less and teaching kids to eat like only certain foods, basically. And it really kind of codified in honestly, it was in the like mid 2000s. Um, Michelle Obama's Let's Move initiative really linked together the idea that childhood nutrition should be about weight prevention and obesity prevention. And so that led to the overhauling of school lunches and school nutrition curriculums, um, sort of were like folded in under that. And there was like lots of very good intentions there about making school lunches healthier 
Um, there were lots of things that the Let's Move program and the subsequent legislation did to fight childhood hunger. Like this was still an ongoing issue. I mean, when um, Obama took office, childhood hunger was like one in four kids. So it was still a huge number. And, you know, there were ways in which these programs were really good for that. But because it was framed through this anti-obesity rhetoric, it's like the effort to make kids healthier became all about their weight instead of about like healthy growing kids and fighting hunger, which was, you know, that issue had not gone away at all. But because the weight thing had become the more pressing social concern, that was where the focus was. And so curriculums today, you know, have to follow guidelines. Well, the CDC sets guidelines around what nutrition curriculums should include that then go to the state and the state writes curriculums that sort of like it filters down to the school. So they're being given the sort of top-down message. So it is difficult for teachers to just like, nope, I'm not going to do that curriculum. <laughs> that, you, know, it's you know, that's not an option. But the guidelines that they get are both extremely fat phobic, but also often quite vague. So there is, you know, like some teachers have told me like, no, there is more leeway. I can get away from sort of like the rhetoric, the way it's written and talk about this concept in a different way, but it does require a lot of teachers. And that's not really fair. You know, like teachers have a lot to do, like they're not supposed to have to write their curriculums from scratch. So yeah. And they are sort of swimming upstream against a whole hierarchy of messaging. That is so complex. And I'm thinking about, of course, there are those teachers that maybe for their own reasons kind of read your articles or follow mm -hmm. folks like you on social media or listen to this podcast and they might have the sort of self-awareness and insight to kind of take a look at what they're being taught and almost put a body positive spin on it but right this feels like a huge dilemma that what do you do if I guess if you're a parent and you're listening to this and you read your articles and you're like oh but my school is not they're not in it with me. Right. What are our options? Because I think you are bringing up this much larger, I don't know, existential crisis of the, quote, war on a childhood obesity. Right. I really want to do a separate episode this season about that because it's so it's it's an enormous, confusing yes. problem. And maybe we'll talk about that in a moment with your upcoming book. Yes. But what do we do, right? It's like we can't fight City Hall when we have to like pack lunches and right, right, know, right. like yeah. homeschool and work and all this. And at the same time, we do want what we do need to protect our kids and help our teachers. What do we do? Virginia, so, what do we do? <laughs> so I think you have a couple of options and these are not presented in order of what I think is the best choice. Like these are just options you can all, we can all consider. Option one is to remember anytime our kids are exposed to diet culture, that is not like someone just threw a poison dart into them and that's it, it's done. Like that is an opportunity to have a conversation with your kids. Because what we're really trying to do, we're not trying to keep our kids in bubbles where they're never exposed to diet culture because that's impossible. What we're trying to do is raise kids who have the tools to navigate diet culture. So if your child brings home a math problem that's all about calorie counting, probably the most important thing you can do is have a conversation with your kid about like, this feels really off to me and here's why and sort of dive into what you see in terms of the fat phobia of the assignment and really like lay that out with them and have that conversation. So I guess that's, I said I wasn't presenting these in orders, but I think that's always a good idea to do when, um, when these things come up, whether it's a school thing or a comment a grandparent makes or, you know, any of these opportunities that we get. The Berenstain's Bears book, you know, like you can... One option is to put it away completely, but if your kid's already read it at the library or something, like have a conversation about what they saw. Option two, if you have the bandwidth for it, it would be to send an email. I would start with the teacher. 
because if you go right over their head to the principal or whoever, that's going to be very combative in terms of, you know, the teacher feeling not like they didn't get a chance to deal with you directly. Um, but I would go to the teacher and say, you know, this assignment's not sitting great with me. Um, these are why, you know, here are some reasons why I would love to have a conversation with you about this. Um, and so you're not like going in guns blazing, like get rid of this assignment. You know, you're like, can we talk about this? Like, can we have a dialogue about what my concerns are and how I think this might be presented and, you know, see how the teacher responds. If that doesn't work, you know, the teacher doesn't respond to you or you feel like, you know, the teacher's like, yeah, I get it, but my hands are tied. You know, I'm held to these higher standards of the curriculum. Then your options would be to talk to the administration of the school. And in particular, what the folks I've talked to who've done this have ended up doing is having to go to like all the way up to the curriculum writers themselves, um, which is probably at the county level or the state level. That may be more than people want to take on. But if you want to go for it, you know, your goal is to sort of have a conversation with the people who are writing these curriculums, offer to share some resources with them engage in a dialogue about this. But even if you, you know, can look at another way of getting involved, most schools have a wellness council or a health council, it's called different things. And those would be like, that's where decisions are made about like posters that are put up in the cafeteria or, you know, what's on the lunch menu, things like that. That can be another way to get involved. Um, So you can make sure, you know, you can kind of be adding your two cents about like, let's not make this about weight. Let's make this, you know, about other things. Um, So there are options about how involved you get. But I think it is good to know that even if you don't feel like you can dive in and do that big fight. And I'll also say, you know, like for someone like me or you doing that fight with like a professional sort of like knowledge of the area, it's easier to get in and have this conversation and know we'll be taken seriously. And not every parent will have that privilege and, you know, may feel like they're just not going to get heard. You can deal with with your kid. The last thing I'll say though, the other option you have, if you don't want to get involved in like the big activism piece, you can opt your child out of the assignment. You can say, you know what, like we are not going to do weight-based stuff at school, you know, so please give me a heads up. And I've talked to parents who've done that. Schools have been responsive to it, you know, and the kid is given different work or taken out of class or whatever on the days when they're doing the nutrition lessons. And so that is your right as a parent. And it can be complicated as well. Your child may not want to be singled out in that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so none of these is perfect, right? Like none of these is like, this will magically solve it. But, you know, and I've had things come up where, you know, a teacher said something, I can't quite remember what the details were, but I decided not to pursue it because it was a point in time when my child was struggling in another way in that class and I needed to be able to work with the teacher on that other issue. And so it wasn't the time to take it on and say like, hey, you know, this assignment. So it's okay if that's where you land on it. But again, you have that option to talk more with your child offline and, you know, deal with it that way. So... I also really, I know. <laughs> it's, it's exhausting just thinking about navigating it. I, I totally understand why parents feel like this is really tough because it's yeah, really tough. It's really tough and it, it feels huge. Like yeah. it just feels, you know, I think that's what can get really sort of despairing, right? Like that it's this cultural, systemic way yeah. of being and to sort of swim upstream when, you, when you're just maxed out. I totally get not having the effort, not having the energy, the bandwidth, like you said. Because of that, I do think what you're saying about a kid interacting with diet culture, it's not a poisonous dart. Mm -hmm. That, yes, it's perhaps better to know about when they're getting bombarded or hit. Yes, yes. Because, like you said, you can have these conversations. And a lot of these conversations are 
don't feel very satisfying. I mean, I'm just thinking about yes. like the my family's been watching The Simpsons a lot because it's like a fantastic show. But can we talk about Homer? Like awful. My husband's showing it to my kids right now because it was his favorite show growing up, and that's same. so funny. This is like the third conversation I've had today about fat phobia and The Simpsons. There's so much. <laughs> There's so much, and I mean, and just to keep it really real for a moment, I try. I'll pause it. I'll get up. I'll look at them and they're like, "It stop. It's annoying. We know, we know. Let's yeah. go. Yeah. And then it's, it's. I think if anything, right, you and I, we do this work in the way we do. And yet our, we do still watch The Simpsons. Like it's yeah. on. Yeah. Is it my first choice for uh, social justice activism? No. Yeah. Um, is it absolutely funny and kind of brilliant at times? Yes. Mm-hmm. And you know, so I think that if anything, I'm looking at that and I think we might look at stuff that comes up at school in ways that you're talking about the same way as just opportunity to keep showing your kids who you are, what your values are, what you hope their values could be. Obviously, we can't control them, but I'm OK if they grow up and they're like, my mom was so annoying. She used to make me stop the Simpsons or she like talked to my science teacher because, you know, I know, yeah. I know healthy, healthy. We don't know what healthy means, mom. Like, right, I'm right. okay with that, even if they're annoyed by it. So I think even if all we're doing is just pausing to say like, whoa, is there anything funny here? Like you were saying, something doesn't quite sit well with me. Here's why. And that might be the end of it. But I like that we have that option. And then the kind of up channeling to the the superintendent or the curriculum writers, and maybe even listening to this podcast or bringing this episode to a school, to a teacher or yeah, to your wellness committee, for example. Yes, absolutely. I think those are all useful tools to think about and that it's good to know like you don't have to solve it all you don't have to fight every battle like you can do what feels accessible to you and know that the most important thing is that your kids see you noticing this and questioning it because that's teaching them to notice and question it and that's what we want we want our kids to be able to you know go through school and I mean, there's so much in school that it's not just diet culture. There's plenty of opportunities in school to question, you know, a dress code rule. Well, I guess that's kind of still diet culture, but you know, there's there's a lot of opportunities to think critically. And those are the skills that schools are teaching kids, and we want to support that as well. So it it's really useful. And I think, you know, I, I think a lot about, you know, how often my mom explained to me about Barbies as a kid. And like, here I am now as like a feminist anti-diet <laughs> culture writer. So obviously it was useful. I mean, it doesn't have to be that life-changing, but... I definitely rolled my eyes. I definitely loved my Barbies as a kid. I was definitely like, okay, mom, I get it. I'm, but I'm still going to be the little mermaid when I grow up, you know? And um, <laughs> and here you are. Yeah. And now I'm doing the same thing with my kids. And so it's, yeah, I think that you plant the seeds with them in useful ways and it'll look different for every kid what that manifests as. But I think that's the the big goal, which can help help us take a deep breath and kind of step back from the like, you know, the, when you see something that's just like, oh God, why is why is this on a math problem? Or why yeah. is this, you know, in a, in a reading comprehension test? Yeah. Totally. I mean, and I, I want to spend a little time talking about your project that you're working on now about little kid fat phobia. But before that, I want to just make a connection. I spoke with Lindo Bacon, and we talked a little bit. We innovated a little bit together around like what they would kind of want to see in, for example, a middle school health curriculum in a science mm-hmm. class, what, what they would want to take out, what they'd want to keep in. And I think because it's so relevant to this conversation, to sort of add to your list, the two big takeaways I had were, one, 
you can't talk about health without talking about the social determinants of yes. health. And you can't talk about nutrition without talking about internal regulation, like the yes. internal cues. Yes. So my dream would be ultimately to figure out a way to like get the intuitive eating ladies in on some kind of school curriculums because intuitive eating is not a term that comes no. up at all in schools ever. Yes. yes. And I think that Lindo and I distilled, like, these are the two things. Because if you can talk about how health, you can't talk about it without its context of social determinants, and you can't talk about nutrition, good food, bad food, health, all this, without talking about what it feels like inside, right? Our kids' mm -hmm. insides, their internal wisdom, if you will. That feels also like a little takeaway here for anyone listening. Like, figure out a way to educate your people and your community about those two things. And can I add a third one to that list? Please, make, yeah. it, make it three. <laughs> um, not to <laughs> overwhelm people, because yes, those first two are brilliant. But the third one would be, I think schools need to be teaching about weight stigma or fat phobia as a social justice issue. Yes. And if they were doing that, they would have to question why so much of the nutrition curriculum is in the weight-centric model, which of course would, you know, there would be a conflict there to work out. But schools are doing such a great job of starting to talk more directly with kids about racism, about gender identity. You know, we are, and parents are doing a much better job with this than we did a generation ago too. You know, we are recognizing that we're not just teaching people the, oh, you don't see race. You know, we're teaching kids like, no, you, we do see race. We recognize racism. We call it out. We embrace different cultures and we need the same messaging around weight and body size. We need to explain that, you know, this world does not treat people in bigger bodies fairly, that there is, you know, systemic discrimination against people in larger bodies in all aspects of life here. And we need to fight that and we need to talk about body size as, you know, a normal part of human diversity and something to be celebrated. And, you know, it's a complicated conversation. It's a conversation a lot of grownups don't feel comfortable having, but I think that's the third piece of this is, you know, if we can really explain that it's not just that we don't want kids to die and we don't want kids to try to lose weight. It's that we need to see this as a larger social issue. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's a good segue for you to tell us what you know about that, because, you <laughs> yes. know, we have to wait a little bit for your book, but I think there's some lessons there. You know, what do teachers, parents, administrators, like, what do we all need to know about particularly little kid fat phobia, little kid weight stigma? Yeah, well, so the book is actually going to be for uh, parents of kids of all ages. Um, it's called Fat Kid Phobia, but there is quite a lot on talking about it at early ages because we know that kids learn that fat is bad between the ages of three and five. So often I hear from parents, you know, I don't want to talk to my kid about weight stigma because I'll be teaching her to dislike her body. And unfortunately, unless your child is two... <laughs> <laughs> that ship has probably already sailed. Not that she already hates her body, but that she's already getting this message. And it's because of exactly what we've been talking about today. It's because, you know, my preschooler came home at three and said, I can't eat my cookie unless I eat my fruit first. That's what Miss So-and-so says, you know? And so it's because they're starting to get diet culture pretty much, I mean, often within the home, of course, you know, we parents are not perfect and we have our own stuff and diet culture comes out in family dynamics all the time. Grandparents can be a big source as well. But then certainly at school, certainly in friends, certainly from the media, they're exposed to weight stigma constantly. And so it is really crucial that we start educating kids, you know, and in for little kids, that's going to look like 
talking about all bodies are great and they come in different sizes. It's going to be neutralizing fat and being able to use fat in a you know, a non-weaponized way with kids. It's also going to be about teaching kids that we embrace all body sizes, but we don't talk about other people's bodies. Like there's a, you know, without their consent, you know, you need to have someone's permission before you describe their body. You describe it using the words they use. You don't label people. So there's a lot of nuance to that, but it really starts with understanding, like with helping kids understand that bodies come in all shapes and sizes. And that's a really good and really important thing. So the book is going to really explore the history of the war on childhood obesity, all the ways that that has underserved kids and caused so much harm in the last 40 years. And the number one way we know that is because, you know, we set out to, quote, fight this war and make kids smaller, and it has not worked. You know, We lost the war. <laughs> we lost the war. And, you know, when we talk about all these reasons why kids are in bigger bodies today, the one that's never talked about is the fact that we've been teaching kids to diet for 40 years. You know, we've been pushing, we've been pushing this conversation in that direction. So, yeah, the book explores that, and then it will include a lot of strategies for parents, um, for all the things we're talking about, you know, how to have these conversations with kids at different ages, um, how to think about nutrition um, in a more weight-neutral or weight-inclusive way, how to handle diet culture when it comes up at schools. Yeah, the the whole, you know, sports, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> kids and sports and body stuff is very complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so there's, there's going to be a lot. It's not out for two years. I have a lot of work still to do, but it's mm-hmm. really, I'm excited about it. <laughs> so that's like a super duper sneak peek. Yes, <laughs> yes. A little early taste there. <laughs> but it, I mean, the world needs it. And I was so excited to hear that you were doing it because this sort of war on childhood obesity, the war on obesity, obesity. I mean, I do think of this as a slur, this word. Yeah, absolutely. I And yet it's weird to think of a word as a slur that most people don't. Like, that's a strange experience. Both a slur and a medical diagnosis that people, you know, that it's written on my chart at my doctor's office to describe me, even though it's a slur. That That is the baked-in fat phobia of our medical system, that we have a weight-centric medical model, just like we have a weight-centric nutrition model at school, that views weight as the single most important determinant of anybody's health. And particularly with kids, weight is considered the single most important determinant of health. And that's really dangerous because weight is not something we have much control over unless you are in the throes of a restrictive eating disorder and have a body that responds to restrictive eating disorder in that way. You know, it is not something that we can control the way we've been told we can control it. And yet we're using it to define so much about kids health and the other thing that's so tricky is that when you start talking about weight equals health you're really saying weight equals morality because we place such a priority on health and healthy living as like this virtuous way to be a good person in our culture and completely ignore exactly what you and Linda were talking about that so much of health is determined by these larger social issues that so much of health is not a matter of personal responsibility or personal choice And then the cultural element of it, I know you touched upon it in the Times article, but when we're talking about good foods and bad foods, how easily we can be disparaging certain cultures or certain socioeconomic status, which is so, it just feels so obvious that that's a problem. And yet there's something maddening about how it's so obvious that it's a problem and yet it's so normalized and it's just so 
just the way, you know? And I think a lot of parents that are attracted to the work that we create and are, and are also attracted to, there's a sort of despair that can set in, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like going back to the bandwidth question before, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like, oh, I can barely get a shower, let alone, you know, fight for social justice. And yeah. yet one of the things that I've become obsessed with is how do we get young people aware of what jobs exist for them, like what kind of social justice warrior jobs Mm -hmm. they need to, or positions they need to fill or fights they need to fight. And so I really appreciate what you're saying before about that thinking about this in the context of social justice and just human rights, how important that is, because I do think more people can go there. Of course, it's always like, yes, but what about health? That's always the right Yeah, of course. And that's where we need to expand how we define health. We need to stop thinking of health as just a number on the scale. The other thing is we need to stop saying that even if weight is bad for your health, which is not always the case, the relationship is very nuanced and complicated. But of course, there are times where weight negatively impacts health or health negatively impacts weight. Even if that's the case, it doesn't justify fat shaming. It doesn't justify bullying. It doesn't justify a medical system that denies people treatment based on their body size. It doesn't justify the fact that we see studies on teachers and doctors finding that they treat fat students or fat patients worse. You know, it doesn't make it okay to treat people poorly just because they are, quote, unhealthy. So the but what about health argument is really like a left turn, like it's a distraction, and we need to Mm -hmm. stay focused on the fact that this is human rights and this is, you know, this is about a systemic form of oppression. And I think when we're talking about like how to, you know, explain this to kids, you know, the other reason I think it's so important beyond just like we want our kids to care about human rights is, you know, as kids get older and, these body concerns manifest, it is helpful for them to have this larger context for that so that they don't just feel like I'm wrong, my body is wrong, I'm, you know, it's my problem. They understand like, no, this is a larger systemic issue and the culture is giving you this message that you're not enough and that you can't take up space. You know, that's what we're fighting back against. I'm not saying that's going to solve someone's internal struggles if they're, you know, struggling with an eating disorder or body image anxieties, but I think it can be empowering for anyone, but especially for kids to realize that this is part of this larger thing and that you can fight it in a bigger way while working on your own stuff. So yeah, I agree there's some despair that sets in when you realize how big it is, but I think there's also some liberation in realizing like, oh, it's not just you. Yeah. I know some schools, and it depends on what age, but some schools have affinity groups Mm -hmm. of of sorts. I wonder what you think, especially as you're kind of knee deep in this project that you're working on, Is there going to be a place for fat affinity groups in schools, fat positive affinity groups? Like, I've never heard of one in a school. I wonder what you think about that. I think we need them really badly. I think if you talk to any fat person who has found peace with their bodies, they will tell you that fat community was hugely instrumental in that process. And so, so often fat people don't find fat community until they're adults, you know? I mean, with social media, that hopefully is happening some, you know, maybe late teenage, whenever they're like sort of active and set free on the internet. Yeah, I think that fat positive affinity groups is a genius idea and a way for kids to build community earlier and understand earlier, you know, there would need to be a lot of care going into it. Like hopefully a teacher who themselves identifies as fat positive, whether they're in a bigger body or not, you know, who can help 
guide the conversations and keep it a space that's like free of diet talk, free of body shame and all of that stuff. But that is really important. Like, you know, kids in bigger bodies don't see themselves represented in media. They don't see themselves in books unless it's like a bully or an idiot. You know, they don't have those positive role models of what like a happy fat life looks like, even though we know there are lots of fat people out there living great lives. Um, and so, yeah, opportunities to have space, safe spaces to talk about that, to talk about the bullying that's going on in schools. Um, we know that weight-based bullying is the number one form of bullying girls experience, number two for boys. So yeah, kids desperately need that. But I do think it would be difficult to get off the ground because even kids in bigger bodies don't want to be in that club, you know, like because right. we put such a privilege on thinness. So and the stigma. Yeah. 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 So it's very tricky. But on the other hand, I think about, you know, when I was a teenager in the 90s and my school started an affinity group for gay, lesbian, you know, queer kids. And it felt like this huge radical thing. And like no one really knew who was in it because, you know, it was like so dangerous and sort of, you know, and now that's like a very normal thing that's in most high schools and hugely empowering for kids. So you know, I kind of think that's where we are on this issue. We have a lot of work to do, but yeah. Yeah. No, well, I guess we'll keep trying. <laughs> yes, definitely. So because we're, we're, I'm mindful of your time, we could do one of two things or both, but I'll let you decide. We asked you last time, like, what's the one thing you would have parents do on a daily basis to help their child fully bloom? Like, I like that question. I want to mm-hmm. keep it, but I'm also interested in any kind of resource recommendations that you have, like for folks that are listening that are like... I, beyond your stuff, which I'm also going to promote, beyond your stuff, what else? What children's book? What this? What that? Because I know you have a lot of those. What You tell me. Do you want to do both or do you want to just pick one? Well, I feel like I kind of already answered the how, do, what do we do on a daily basis thing? Because yeah. I think it is that like when you, when these things come up, you have the conversation, you think of diet culture as something you're teaching your child to navigate and not something you're trying to protect them or like keep them in a bubble from. So I think that would still be my answer for that. So specifically on the school issue, there's a great Instagram account called Dietitians for Teachers, the number four. Um, They're a group based in Canada, so they're obviously more familiar with Canadian curriculum issues, but they have a ton of great resources. Um, I think it's a great starting point for educators listening who want to learn more about how to navigate this or for parents who are sort of looking for ways to have the conversation with schools. They put out a lot of great information, so that would be an account I recommend checking out. In terms of books, a really wonderful book I just read is Starfish by Lisa Filippi. It's a novel, a middle grade novel. Um, The main character is 11, I think. So, you know, I read it with my seven-year-old. Well, then she took it and finished it herself, which, so so then I had to finish it by myself, but whatever. (laughs) Um, uh, But I think like she was probably on like the youngest end, I would say more probably like eight to 12 age group. And it's the story of a girl, a fat kid, who's being really bullied at school for her weight, really bullied at home. It's written in poetry. It's just like beautifully, beautifully written. I mean, I like cried many times. And it's really empowering how she learns to advocate for herself, how she learns to find friendships and sort of like deal with stuff with her mom. I mean, it's just like such a rich, beautiful book that Mm. is the book that I think like anyone you know, anyone who was a former fat kid who reads it is like, this is the book I needed. Um, Mm. But, you know, I read it with my thin daughter because I want her to understand this issue um, and because she may not always be a thin child, you know. So this is, like again, the human rights piece of it. So, yeah, that's a must read. I really recommend it for parents and for kids. 
That's great. I don't even know if I follow those folks on Instagram. They're great. So, yeah. Wow. Check them out. I'm so glad. And that book is on my list of things to read. Anything else that we didn't cover? Anything that you want? Like, again, that parent that wants to get some of this information into the hands of the teachers that are in their kids' lives. Is there anything else you want to add or do you feel like we covered it today? We covered so much. I'm trying to think if there's any other resources. I mean, certainly you could send them the Times piece I wrote. I have a lot of content on my newsletter, Burnt Toast, which is virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. I answer parent questions on there and, you know, I report them out. So when I get questions, I don't know if I've done a school piece recently, but I certainly have it on my list to cover. And Mm -hmm. there's stuff about having conversations with grandparents, about talking to your a lot more detail on how to have these conversations with your kids. So there might be some useful tools for folks in there. That's great. And I I am a subscriber and I love your newsletter. Oh, thank thank you. Thank you for that. Virginia, this was wonderful. I'm so glad you were here. And for those that didn't listen, we did a great interview with you, I think in our second season about, it was, can I be too fat for motherhood is what we called it. Oh yeah. That was a great episode. Yeah, That was a great conversation and another article. So we'll link to that too. So people can take a look and become I was going to say disciples of yours, but that sounds very radicalized. (laughs) Let's not say that. Um, Just Just readers. 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 You don't want disciples. Um, But there is, you know, this is a movement of sorts. Yeah, Um, that's true. Right? It is. And we need leaders. And I, I do think you are one of the leaders and journalistic leaders anyway that I respect and follow. So thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for all of your work on this. It's so helpful to people. So that's today's show. If you'd like to support The Full Bloom Project, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. The more ratings and reviews, the more easily people can find this show and nurture the young people in their lives. Thank you all for listening and join me next time for more body positive parenting wisdom.